Go ahead and grab your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are uh, finishing our study of this chapter, although we are done with our study of the doctrine of the resurrection, uh, how we understand Christ's resurrection and applies to us theologically, pastorally, practically, and whatnot. Uh, we've been looking exegetically at the doctrine of resurrection through the lens of Paul on Sunday evenings. 58 verses in this chapter, and what a doozy it is. Uh, there is a lot, lot here, and uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was because, although I knew of Paul's argument, I'd never really done much of a dive into it. I, I can make you think I knew everything Paul had said in it, but I really didn't. Um, and this has been helpful to me, just, just to go bit by bit, verse by verse, through this lengthy but blessed chapter. I think we can see why it is called the resurrection chapter. Well, we want to read the final eight or nine verses, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. We'll stand with me out of reverence to God's Word. We'll start in verse 50. Verse 50 is a uh, sort of a turning point from, from one argument to the next, as we'll see. It concludes what we saw last time and opens up what we see this week. Verse 50. Until you, this brother's flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment of the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we ask that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that you would go, uh, that you would lead us to greater obedience and transformation in Christ. This is your work, Lord. This is a text that should be reason enough for us to celebrate. For Christ is coming. Christ will come. Christ will be victorious. We look forward to the day that the, the last enemy, death, is thrown into a lake of fire. Let us live with hope, knowing that that will be so. May I decrease so you can increase. Name yourself, we pray. Amen. See you. So far in this chapter, we've seen that what Paul has been exploring is the who, the what, the why, and the how of our resurrection. The who is, of course, Jesus and his followers. As Jesus was raised, so we will be raised. So Jesus is, to use Paul's language, the first fruits of the resurrection. We will follow him um, accordingly. The what of the resur- uh, is, is the resurrection itself, right? That our future is not a disembodied existence by which our souls uh, afloat outside of our bodies. And we, as we've been um, uh, sort of teasing, uh, will become spiritual cherubs with little wings, chubby, of course, sitting on a cloud, playing the harp, everything uh, like that. But rather, we will be embodied being with the glorious transformation brought about by the power and work of Christ in the new creation. 
The why is the practical side of the resurrection. We, on at least two occasions, Paul pauses to give some practical pastoral insight into the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we have things like comfort and assurance and, and peace and hope and, and answers to some of life's most pressing questions. What happened to us when, when we die? What happens to our loved ones whenever uh, they die? What hope do we have in this world or the next? What comfort is there when we are confronted with death and sickness and all that? The how is the mechanics of the resurrection, which is what we saw last time. Death, you may, may remember Paul's uh, illustration of the seed, right? You, you put a seed in the ground and it dies. So we get death, we get transformation, and we get permanence. That, that when we die, what, what, what follows in the resurrection looks different uh, um, than, than the seed. At the same time, uh, we, we don't become new people. We, we, we become uh, transformed by the resurrection. And Paul gives us sort of the mechanics of that uh, in, in the verses leading up to what we read here this evening. But what we have here in verses 50 to 58 or 51 to 58, depending on what you do in verse 50, um, is the win of the resurrection. It's all good and well to know the mechanics and why it's important and what happens and all that sort of stuff. But, but when is this going to happen? Um, is it going to be soon? Is it going to be far from now? When is this going to happen? And Paul's answer is really clear in, this con- in the conclusion of this chapter. And the when is the second coming of Jesus. When will this happen? It is when Christ returns and set up his eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, this passage begins with the mystery in verses 52, 53. Now, as we've already said, verse 50 is sort of a, a turning point. It, it is a, summar, a summarization of what we saw leading up to verse 50. It also cracks open the door for what follows. And so he says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, we saw that, right? This is why you have to have a resurrection. Much as you wouldn't go to the moon in a sundress, so too you and I can't simply walk into uh, the throne room of God uh, as we now are, right? Uh, what we need is the resurrection. We need the transformation brought about by that. And he picks up the language he used before, that the perishable will inherit uh, the imperishable. The mortal must put on immortality, right? And, and so what is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory, you may recall. Again, all that language you can see that precedes this. But this opens up the door. Okay, if that is our great hope, that the perishable will will inherit the imperishable, that the mortal will put on immortality, if if that is our great hope, then when is this going to take place? And and Paul tells us that, that all of this that he's been discussing is a great mystery. Behold, he says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. And so he spent the entire chapter talking about death, that when we die, this is what happens. Right? So, so we've talked about that we're not going to be disembodied uh, 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 beings. We're going to be embodied, uh, resurrected uh, beings that, that are made fit for the kingdom of God. We've, we've talked about this, but, but there's a, a detail here that is important that, that allows them to talk about the second coming. That is, although as a general rule, death will precede resurrection, there will be some who will never, to use the metaphor, sleep. Now, if you've ever gone with me to a funeral or to a graveside service of a believer, you've heard me talk about this passage. I almost always read this passage. There's a good chance that this is the passage I'm going to look at Thursday at my great uncle's funeral. Uh, because I just love this, this, this passage. The ending of 1 Corinthians 15 is fantastic. But that metaphor of sleep, I think, is interesting. Sleep. Sleep. Now, this is not the first time Paul's used that imagery. You can go back in the earlier verses and you can find some more examples of it. But he, he uses all kind of words to describe death. He'll say dead and death. But he'll also say sleep. 
I don't know about you. Every night when I go to sleep or during the day when no one's looking and I take a nap, right, uh, particularly the kids, you know, uh, if, 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 if I'm going to go asleep, the implications of that is I will awake. Now, I may awake sooner than I want to. I may wake suddenly because of an alarm clock. I may get to sleep a long time. I know, uh, was it uh, last night or night before or whatever, did anyone else get uh, awakened by the storm? I, I, you know, you, you, the, the, the house was lit up, and then all of a sudden it was shaken to its core. The storm must have been right over our house. It's like God is shouting with his booming in Johnny Cash voice, wake up, right? And I, I know that whenever that happens, if I'm jumping out of the bed, I know that I will soon be kicked out of the bed. And sure enough, I believe it's a Friday night. Uh, um, I was worried about not getting enough sleep for the yard sale. So Friday night, there I was, uh, whatever time it was, midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock, whatever it was, sleeping on the couch. So that a certain girl, I won't tell you who was, a certain girl can take my side of, of the bed. Well, sleep implies waking up. And so you can see his point there. Sleep is a great metaphor for resurrection. It implies not death as if it is final, but sleep as if there, there, there is an awakening. Not everyone will sleep, he says. This is the mystery. Some will not die. Now, this mystery idea is, is all over the New Testament, particularly Pauline. He's not the only one to use this language, but he certainly loves to use it. It, is, it means that there are things hidden in the old that have been revealed in light of the coming and triumph of Christ. This is one of them. Because right? we, we talked about this before, that, that the Jews in the time of Jesus and Paul, there was significant debate over the resurrection. You may recall that Jesus was mocked by the Sanhedrin, who rejected the resurrection, for believing in it. You know, you remember the, par- the story, right? If a woman marries a man, he dies, and she marries an, you know, his brother. And he, he, she marries seven of his brothers. Uh, at some point, you would think we'd call the police and suspect something. But nevertheless, they ask, in the resurrection, whose husband is, is, is whose wife is she going to be, right? They're mocking the idea of resurrection. Paul in Acts will, will claim that he's being arrested because as a Pharisee, he believed in the resurrection. And that caused all kinds of division among them. So this is a significant debate. So, so although I think it is present in the Old Testament, we looked at some reasons why that is. It is revealed clearly in the New Testament, particularly in the uh, resurrection of Jesus. If Christ has been risen, so shall we be risen. This is the mystery. However, not everyone will uh, experience death. Some will not experience sleep. But, however, we will all be changed. You see his language there at the end of verse 51. So, so, so the, the, when it happens, there's, there's the issue of those who are dead and who are not dead yet. However, regardless of that distinction, what happens remains the same. We will all be changed. That's his broader point there. Now, you'll notice there that it happens at the return of Christ, verse 52, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, I think the we there is not Paul and his readers. I think it's everyone who is dead or who is alive. Uh, But that's a matter of scholarly debate for another time. But you see his reference to to the trumpet makes it clear he is talking about the end times. Now, um, the trumpet, again, this is some debate here because we are talking about the end times. If we take this literally, that there will be a trumpet, uh, we do have references to trumpets in the end times, particularly the book of Revelation. There's seven of them. 
And so if he has those trumpets in mind, you will find this event in Revelation 11. If you come from a premillennial dispensational perspective, fancy words, which means if you've read the Left Behind books and, and believe every bit of it, that means you're, you're going to take this and you're going to say, this is the moment of the rapture. Now, that could be the pre-tribulation rapture. It could be a post-tribulation rapture after seven years. It could be the midpoint uh, of the rapture, three and a half years. If you come from a pre-millennial dispensational perspective, not everybody, that's their interpretation of the end times. Um, and, and, and so particularly pre-millennials are a little uneasy about putting this event in Revelation 11. They want it to be rather in chapter 20, 21, something like, or, or really even before with the rapture. However, it's interesting that often when the Bible talks about the return of Christ, it associates the event with a trumpet. Matthew 24, verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one of heaven to the other. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Many scholars have often uh, put together this text here in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 with 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 with Paul's theology of, of, of the end. I think that that can be helpful. So whether this is a literal trumpet like Revelation or a symbolic one like you get in the Olivet Discourse and Paul's other writings, it, it, it doesn't matter. The point is the trumpet is associated with the return of Christ. And this is typical, right? When one enters triumphantly from war, their coming is announced by the means of a trumpet. Much in the same way, if the president were to give a speech here tonight, right, what would precede his arrival to the stage? Hail to the chief, right? We, we, we get this. This is typical of ancient Near Eastern cultures, typical of our culture here. Again, the, the specifics uh, isn't the main point here. What we need to see is the when of this event. The mystery is we will all be changed at the return of Christ. Now, in the Jewish mind, there was only one coming of Christ. But now that Christ is risen and he's promised a second return, we understand actually there's two. There's the one by which he, he, he purchases the elect, and second by which he draws it all to himself and he reigns forever in eternity. But you can see there in verse 53, he, he returns to, to his main point. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Again, whether you die or you don't, that, that in the moment it happens, in the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye, we will all be changed. The perishable becomes imperishable. The mortal becomes immortal. Well, that's the mystery. Verse 54 to 58 is the victory as a result of the resurrection. Why does all of this matter? It is nice to be able to explore some of the specifics of our future destiny. But at the end of the day, what does it have to do with the price of bread in China? Or whatever the phrase is. Y'all are going to correct me every time I say that, but I can't remember the correct one. So this is going to be my version of it. Well, there is some theological truth worth highlighting here, right? That our resurrection is the death knell of death itself. The when the dead are raised, that is the death of death itself. Read Revelation. What is it that, that when Christ returns, 
Right? He's going to bound the beast and the false prophet and the, and the dragon will be crushed, all that sort of stuff. And there at the end, what happens is he casts death itself into the lake of fire. I mean, I, I just love that imagery. I don't know what it means, like what it actually looks like. How do you capture death? I don't know what that means, but I love the apocalyptic imagery that death will die and will remain eternally dead. And, and Paul is making that point here that ultimately the hope of the resurrection is the assurance that death will forever be a defeated foe. Notice here in verse 54, his, his emphasis on the, the, the return of Christ. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, right? We've already seen, when does that happen? It happens when Christ returns. That's everything he's been saying up to verse 53, essentially. Now, um, what is interesting about the language is the tenses he uses. And remember, Paul is, is describing a future event, which is why he says, when the perishable... However, we would expect him to continue to use present tenses. However, what Paul does is he uses the past tense to describe this event. When, future, whenever this happens in the future, he'll say the perishable has become imperishable. Whenever this happens, the mortal has become immortal. Now, this is uh, a, a, a classic way of writing in light of the Hebrew prophets. Whenever they would uh, con, uh, condemn, uh, let's say, Babylon or the Assyrians or something like that, what they'll say is, is that Babylon is fallen or Babylon has fallen, something like that. Now, the event is future, but they, they, they describe it in the past or the present as if it has happened or it is happening now. And the reason the Hebrew prophets did that was to put certainty on the events. Much in the same way that Babe Ruth supposedly uh, called his shot, uh, you know, saying a home run. That's basically what they're doing. They're, they're, they're so certain of what is going to happen, they are describing it as it has already happened. When the perishable has put on the imperishable. You see the certainty of what it is that he is saying. He's describing a future event as if it were past. Now this certainly is bigger than unshakable hope. It is rooted in the historic reliability and certainty of Jesus' resurrection. Remember, Paul is a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying, guys, Jesus defeated death, which means Jesus has defeated death. There's no point in us speaking in future tense, one day death will die. We can look in the past because there's an empty tomb. Death has died. Now, there is still, to use language, we'll see the sting of death. There is still the wound of death. But be certain, so long as Christ is living, death has died. And because Christ has, is alive, because death has died, we will live forevermore. You can see why this is so important for us to grasp. So he doubles down on this uh, with, with this sort of language, and he does it by, by keeping the same tenses going, but, but he's quoting the Old Testament. Verse, verse 54, he says, this, this comes uh, the past, the saying, quoting the Old Testament, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Notice again the, the present tense. Where is it? Where is it? Because you and I can look around 
And we see the sting of death like a scorpion everywhere. This past Thursday, I was supposed with my wife to take two days to get away, do some stuff for my capital ministry uh, in Owensboro. We were going to try to connect both work and we don't want to have kids around us, right? Uh, especially with our uh, anniversary coming up. And um, um, minutes before, we were ready to take the kids to go see mom. I get the call. It's any minute with your uncle. Right? We were close to my uncle. You all heard me talk about him for, for our eight years here. And so everything stops. And we sit there for a few hours and watch as the sting of death sinks its fangs into our very hearts. Every breath that was difficult, every moment we thought, is this it? Every time we called in the nurses, the sting of death is very real. At the same time, Paul's language is not future. It is present. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, what have you really earned here? What have you really gained here? It's present tense. Why? Because Paul's theology of our resurrection is rooted in the historic reality of Jesus' resurrection. Which is why to call into question the resurrection of Jesus is to make our faith crumble before our eyes. There is no hope we have if Christ, his bones are rotting in a tomb somewhere. Or in some ossuary box somewhere in the Middle East. There is no hope for you and I. Best of luck to you there. Death, where is your sting? Now, Paul both exalts and mocks death here. I love this. Notice the celebration there in, 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 at, at the end of verse 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, he is quoting here. If you follow me on Facebook, I put this on the, uh, my Facebook post about my uncle. Isaiah 25, 8. He, that is God, will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God, that is Adonai Yahweh, it's, it's, it's both, the, the master Yahweh, will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all earth, for the Lord has spoken. You see that Paul is taking that, and he's writing it for the Corinthians, this poetic way, quoting Isaiah 25 in the present tense, where God will swallow death forever. Death is swallowed up, he adds, in victory. This isn't accidental. This is victory. He said, for the Christian, particularly those in the context of suffering, as the Corinthians would have been, uh, is is. They were people who see victory despite suffering. So too are we. Because death has been swallowed up in victory. With the triumph of Christ over the dragon and over death and over our depravity. But he doesn't just celebrate the defeat of death. He mocks death. This is typical of ancient Near Eastern warfare. This is why when, when Caesar would, would, would defeat uh, another nation, he would bring the king or chief or whatever, and he would throw a big old party and they would celebrate. And at the end, the tail end of it, would, would, would be the king, the defeated foe, stripped on, on a donkey, being mocked. As everyone would say, look who tried to defeat mighty Rome. So you would have celebration in the front, mockery in the back. Paul opens up with celebration. He concludes with, with mockery here. And here, where is your victory? Where is your sting? He's quoting from Hosea chapter 13. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, the, the grave. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? You see how Paul takes it and, and, and he, he, he makes a few changes to, to continue his arguments. So what we have then is victory over death, a mockery of it. 
You see then why when the believer walks into the funeral home of another believer, there is the sense of hope that you can feel. But when you walk into, you've heard me tell this before, into the funeral home of a family devastated by tragedy and death, you can feel hopelessness. Why? Because we can celebrate death is swallowed up in victory and we can mock it. You have done your best. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. Would you, def- would you fear a foe that was well defeated and destroyed? No, no, you wouldn't. I don't fear the Philistines are going to harm us, do you? What do we really have to fear about death? Now, notice where he goes from there. In verse 56 to 57, I would argue, is Paul's entire theology summarized in two verses. If you wonder, if, so, so if I want to save you from reading 13 or 14 books, depending on who wrote Hebrews, and, and you're trying to figure out what does Paul believe, I can give it to you, Cliff Note version, two verses. I'm going to save you hours, okay? Here it is, verse 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Read Galatians. Read Romans. You're particularly going to see this. Read any of his writings. You're going to see this. This is articulated by Paul over and over again. This is the Reformation in a nutshell. Because Reformation was, was very, very Pauline in its way its theology was developed. Here it is. Notice, first of all, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Did you notice there that the law, it promises something it does not deliver, but what it delivers is the opposite of what it promises. The law produces sin, which produces death. I can prove it to you. We've we've done this before. I put up a sign up over here that says, do not touch this sign. How many kids? I'll go and touch that sign. If you didn't have the law, right? You're not going to touch that sign. The, the law often makes us want to break it. At the same time, the law reminds us that we are broken. After all, there would not be a law that says don't murder people if we weren't murdering people. If it never crossed our mind we should take a life, we wouldn't need the law that says take a life. The very existence of law is to remind us who we are in our core. And then its presence shows us that we can't keep it. That is why it says, don't murder, don't steal, don't you know, lie under oath, whatever it is. If you do, here's the consequences to that. Because society doesn't trust you. It's true for all of us. So the law... Is, is, doesn't actually redeem us. It promises us that we can in, evade sin by obeying it. But what it does is it makes us worse sinners. For one, it convinces us we did keep it, therefore we're righteous, and, and, and there's pride, that's sin. Or it condemns us continually, and thus it produces shame and guilt and fear and doubt. So it promises liberation, but it only gives us more slavery. So, so the sting of death is seen in sin. The reason we have death is because sin has entered into the cosmos. 
The power of that sin is the law. It doesn't liberate us. It, it condemns us. But, one of those theological buts that Paul loves, thanks be to God, Christ is the end of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Now, now, did you see what he just did there? In verse 54, when he's citing Isaiah 25, he claimed the victory is over death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Now he's claiming the victory is over the law. See, you see the beauty of the gospel, Pauline theology? It's both and. The fangs of the serpent is death and law, sin. But you can't talk about death without talking about the law or the dragon. You can't talk about the dragon without talking about death and sin. They're all together. What we need is not a better lawgiver. What we need is not someone who's equipped at warfare. What we need is not just someone who, who can um, just, just be a good person to give us good teaching. No, what we need is a victorious Savior in our behalf to win these battles for us. And in so doing, we become the righteousness of, of, of Christ. So we can declare, death is swallowed up in victory, and we can mock it. Oh, death, where is your sting? This is, this is the New Testament in a nutshell. Isn't this why we sing a hymn I'm sure you're familiar with? I heard an old, old story about a Savior who came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning and his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sin and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me, he bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath his cleansing flood. Understand, Christ is your victor. As we saw this morning, you, you are not David slinging rocks at your giants. You're not Daniel quieting the, the mouse of lions. You're not Elisha raising the widow's son. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We are broken and dead until Jesus won the victory. Well, the temptation of a passage like this is to focus exclusively on the theology, and there's plenty there. We could spend uh, four more hours on a theology of the end times, and I'm sure some of us would want to do that. Um, but we need to remember Paul isn't just a theologian, he's a pastor, he's a church planner. And it's interesting that when he lays out his theology, as he does in all of his letters, he then turns and says, this is how it applies to you. Can, can we just end that way? That's what Paul does. Notice what he does in verse 58. Therefore, now you've heard me say this, and I'm stealing it from other people. This is not a new saying. When you see the word therefore, ask yourself, what is therefore, therefore? Therefore is therefore for everything he has said in the previous 57 verses. Christ is risen. He's, and because of that, he's the first fruits of our resurrection. Here is the who, here is the what, here is the how, here is the why. Finally, here is the when. Not all of us will sleep. 
But we will all be changed in a moment of the twinkling of an eye. And we will be with him forever. Now, what are you going to do with that today? You're going to sit around and wait? This is what he says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Notice he, he says to do two things for the rest of your life as we await the day of his coming. First of all, be steadfast and immovable. Stop fearing culture. Stop fearing death. Stop fearing suffering. Stand firm. Christ has already won the victory. If you need to, read stories of the martyrs to be encouraged. Secondly, be faithful in your labor. It is interesting to me that Paul tells us to stand, and then he tells us to work. <laughs> Sounds like a state worker. Anyways, um, on the one hand, he says, don't go anywhere. Don't do something. Stand there. Then he turns around and says, don't stand there. Do something. Both are true. You have to be able to stand on something in order to move. And you wouldn't move unless you can first stand there, have be anchored. But notice that our labor for the Lord is never in vain. When a father consistently comes home from a busy day at work and is present with his children, what seems small in the universe is not in vain. When a believer prays over the lost souls in their life, what seems like insignificant work to the culture, it's not in vain. When a church chooses truth over ease, it sounds controversial to everyone else, but their labor is not in vain. I hope it's encouraging. You will never see the full fruit of your labor till Christ has come and we are with him in glory. But do know your labor is not in vain. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And so shall we. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be kind.